Alright, what's going on guys? Episode 16, we talk about our previous pre meet performances, we talk about things that could have gone better during our prep, how I kind of peaked too early on bench press, and just our overall thoughts on meet directors in general, and the need to not necessarily be federation specific, more so along, uh, or loyal I should say, more along the lines of how we can be meet director loyal. So we also get into some anatomy based things towards the end, uh, talking about like shoulder and scapular dysfunction a little bit. If you're interested in a little more of that, let me know, hit me up. Uh, on top of all of this though, in the coming episodes, we are going to start discussing some nutrition based things. So if you guys have any nutrition based questions, I We'll be happy to fill those. Steve will be happy to fill those with the knowledge he's got. Uh, so hit us up with any questions you've got and enjoy this episode, guys. All right, and away we go. So you and I both recently competed. Uh, I competed three-ish weeks ago almost. You competed this past weekend. So let's start off with you. How did your meet go? Um. So I was, uh, I was a little bit nervous heading into the meet because I wasn't able to take off the time from work in the, the week beforehand like I typically do. Um, some things didn't line up with our work schedule. And then um, there was like some miscommunications between me and the meet director involving like what days I would lift on. And I thought I would be lifting Sunday. And then we all got moved to Saturday. So my weigh-ins became Friday. I worked on Friday. So I was in an interesting spot Friday. When I woke up, I was two pounds over my weight class. And I needed to, A, go to work and work a productive day at work. And then I needed to weigh in at four o'clock after work and do like a late weigh in. So I was over. And so I was fearful that I would come in heavy if I ate and drank all day like I normally would. So I did the typical liquid calories as far as um, protein shakes and orange juice for my macros. I did that for my two meals at 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. At, at noon. And then after that, I cut liquids and foods for the next four hours. And I came in at 237.8. So I kind of overshot the mark. I definitely could have ate normal foods and drank normal fluids, but being that I was literally laboring in the field and I didn't have my my calibrated scale with me and everything, I just wanted to be sure. Um, so weigh-ins went all right on Friday. You know, I did the sushi load Friday night, like I typically do, made sure to eat uh, really good digestible foods that were high in carbs and salt. Um, the next day I woke up and my knees were feeling a little achy from work the previous week. Uh, the last day on Friday, I was crawling around on my hands and knees, uh, driving nails into artificial turf in this big piece of artificial turf. So I was just crawling on my hands and knees all day. Knees felt a little achy when I woke up and was warming up. So I went ahead and took the attempt path that would lead me to the comp PR of 560. I had an alternative path that would take me to an all-time PR of 575 and another one that would take me to an all-time PR of 600. So because I felt a little achy, I had worked the day before, I wasn't sure how my strength was that day. I took the easy route as far as like only squatting 560 for a 10 pound comp PR. Smoked it, obviously it moved very well. And at that point I became aware that I needed to move my expectations to the center or right hand column, which is my more aggressive attempts. Uh, bench went well. I made all three of my bench attempts and ended with 405. I had a cool moment with one of the lifters. So uh, I took his record with 405 and then he turned around and tried to retake it with 407. 
And I was talking shit that had he been successful, I would have retaken it with 410 as a fourth. And, you know, that's like, that's just the fun small town fed stuff. Like you could never do that in the USPA or like RPS or like n- none of these like real big feds. But because we're in a small backyard federation, we're kind of able to talk shit and go back and forth with records like that, like in real time. And that's a fun experience that I think most people aren't really used to. Um, I left three for three with Bench. He missed the 407. So I didn't attempt the 410. Probably could have got it, but I didn't attempt it. Uh, went into deadlifts and for the first time in like my literal professional lifting career, I have not felt hypoglycemic and flat going into deads. I typically warming up for deadlifts. My hands are shaking like a leaf trying to set my hook grip and my, the caffeine has just fried me. I haven't had enough food. My stomach is so upset from nothing but candy and Gatorade all day. Like just not putting myself in a good position to execute for deadlifts. But this time I actually, made a meal plan and tracked my macros and timed my macros and timed my intake and my fiber and my caffeine and all that and saw much more success. So going into deadlifts, I felt really good, smoked my first three attempts. And uh, for my third, I ended with 685, which is a comp and uh, all-time PR outside of like the 700 that I YOLO'd. From there, I then went to the four, to my fourth attempt and uh, I wasn't really super convinced that I was needing to pull 700 or that it would be meaningful for me. But the the people that I was coaching that day in the crowd, they were very insistent that I follow myself. So I hit the 685 as the last pull. They sat me down in a chair for literally five minutes, put five minutes on a timer, and then they had me pull the 700. The crowd was hype. All the kids loved it. It was a really cool moment. So the 700 moved. Yeah. And like, in hindsight, I, I feel pretty good about 715, 720. Yeah. I feel like 720, I would have maybe had to grind at the lockout or maybe miss at lockout, but I feel like I definitely could have cleared my knees with it. Yeah. It's one of those days where it all came together. Everything felt really good. Everything felt really strong. Um, I was also coaching and handling three or four of my athletes there. They all had good days, um, PRs for everybody. And I'm very happy with it. Um, it was a solid day. And in the future, the only thing I'll do differently at my next meet is I'll make sure that I can take the time off that I need beforehand. So the Iron Nightmare is August 5th. So I'll go ahead and take that whole week off, probably. I'll take August 1st to the 5th off. Yeah. And then I'll pursue. I probably want to swing at 700, 420, 720. Or I'm sorry, 600, 420, 720 at my next meet. Other than that, that's that's about how it went. And how'd your meet go? So let's see. I went, you went nine for nine, right? Yeah, or 10 for 10. Well, yeah, 9 for 9 with a 4. I went 7 for 9, actually. Um, So made all my squats, all my deadlifts, and shit the bed on bench. Um, So, yeah. Uh, I'll just start off with bench because no one cares about bench, so just skip over the next, like, five minutes if you don't want to hear it. But uh, basically, my bench press, I peaked too early. So I had hit 413 in training. And I was slated to bench somewhere around 410 to 425, really. But unfortunately, um, I peaked way too early for my bench press and just fell flat on my face. I made my first attempt at 374, went to 402, um, pretty much kind of scratched my second one. As I started pressing and something just felt wrong. So I just basically told them to take it. Like, there's, there's no record. There's no money on this. Like I'm not winning anything. So just go ahead and take it. Mm-hmm. I came back and tried to bench it again. A lot better um, as far as like position wise and everything. But uh, 
there are some things I have to work on with some hip extension and also just some timing with the loading as far as it comes with this new training modality I've been using, mm -hmm. which I thought I had pretty set up, but uh, looking back, like it's, it's pretty obvious. Like my best bench was probably, I don't know, five to six weeks out from the meet versus at the meet. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something I'll have to take into account that and the stress and the decrease in body weight didn't help. But so yeah, uh, bench one for three, 374 squats were, they felt really good. Um, like I said, I went three for three. I ended up with 618. I, Probably had a little bit left in the tank on that one. Probably could have squatted somewhere between 625 and 630. But coming back from a hamstring pop, like, I don't know, three or four months before that, I was pretty happy with 618. Like, I have no qualms with bench, or not bench, uh, squats or deadlifts at all during that day. Uh, deadlifts, I started... Okay. Opened at like 640, and I ended up pulling 705. Mm -hmm. um, so that was pretty cool. That was a long time coming. Um, I think I totaled like 1694, so fell short of the 17 plus I was going for. But again, like you, I felt like I could have pulled 720 at that day. Like I've, I've very much had everything clicking on squats and deads, so uh, it was definitely there. But I already taken seven and five for a third, so okay. But I ended up. Uh, you placed first at yours, right? No, I actually got second in my class to oh, a nice. buddy Ryan Finch. Yeah, Ryan came in and squatted like six fifty, and I just couldn't get around that. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I ended up taking first uh, and best overall in dots. For classic, or not classic, uh, for raw. So, mm -hmm. uh, not that it's much. It's a backyard meet, kind of. Uh, Shelby and Blake. So, this is at Primal Strength and Performance in San Antonio. Uh, Blake LaHue and Shelby LaHue do a fantastic job on this meet, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, warm up room, great. Um, there was only one mono, but it is what it is. Like they have two monos, one for the competition, one for the meet, right? Or one for the warm-up room, one for the competition. Um, but for the most part, like all of its kilos, all of its you know competition grade equipment. So mm -hmm. love that. Like, yeah, as far as like meets that I've been a part of, because uh, I actually I helped with the last USPA meet they put on, right? And I will say, like, they've been some of the smoothest running meets I've seen out of all the meets I've been to. Granted, you know, when you get to these larger scale meets and whatnot, like, there is going to be some uh, some things that go on, some things that happen, but like, you know, I actually... thoroughly enjoyed the 24, 25 lifters that we had. Mm -hmm. Like, it was not a long day. Then we ended up, like, my flight ended at like one thirty or something like that. Okay. So um, similar. Yeah. I think I was in flight a and we got done pretty early, Yeah. but you raise, you raise a good point about the federation being less important than the meat director. 
So I've competed now in three or four different federations um, under obviously multiple meet directors for the USPA, for Raw United, for 100% Raw, API. Like I've, I've, you know, I've been around in some of these meets and in my experience, the meet director is the most critical thing that you can look at when you're shopping for a meet experience. Um, and I'll take a second to plug some of the good meet directors in Florida, like Dustin on Instagram. He's the voice of strength. Yep. He really committed himself and made a point of publicly committing himself to putting on better meets and for the USPA Florida lifters. And when we did the Iron Nightmare 4, the Iron Nightmare 3, you remember you were at. It was held outdoors. And, and while it was a good running <laughs> meet, a lot of lifters were unhappy with the venue and the way things were ran. So Dustin yeah, took that. I think with that one... A lot of the lifters, like when I talked to them, a lot of them were unaware that it was outside. Correct. So that's like, I get what their qualm was with that one. Um, I'm derailing us, but whatever. But at the same time, like, you don't control your variables. Like, you swing at what's given on you. So, yeah. Um, well, Dustin took that that t Dustin took that that part of the criticism in the Iron Nightmare three, and at the Iron Nightmare four, he rented out a beautiful venue center. It was an actual convention center. We had locker rooms, showers. Uh, it was we had it was AC, tons of seating for for um, for spectators, kilos front and back. He had Iron Knight members on every warm up platform, loading and and doing the combo for you. Never seen that at a meet before, where you go to warm up and they ask, "What's your rack height and what do you need loaded?" And these are not competitors. These were gym members that Dustin had recruited to help put on a good meet. So me and my lifters, at least, we saw that, we appreciated it, and we committed to also doing the Iron Nightmare 5, which is in August. And that's the next meet that I have on my schedule. And it's because Dustin, as a specific meet director, made sure that he was going to do a better job at putting on quality meets for the lifters. Versus there are some other, there are probably three or four other USPA meet directors that I've experienced with. Gary Brewer, Rich Fika, and Trish. Like, I've dealt with all of their meets before and I'm not going to throw shade at anybody individually, but their meets are not the same. They're not ran the yeah. same. They're not officiated the same. Like there is a big difference. And while they're all USPA Florida meets, the meet director is ultimately the biggest factor for me. And Blake LeHue and his wife being good meet directors are putting on a great meet regardless of the Federation. Exactly. Right. Like they do WRPF. It's whatever you can squat out of the mono. I chose to walk mine out. Like it really doesn't matter. Like they have, do they've done some really good things to the sport already and being at their gym, like they have more things coming down the pipeline that are really cool that I think will make a difference for the San Antonio area for powerlifting and whatnot. Right. Like Blake is already putting on, I think he's already got another meet that he's going to be hosting next year, I think. So like, I really do expect primal, the gym is called Primal Strength and Performance. I, I really do expect them to expand in the coming year. Um, like I walk in there on certain nights and I'm just like, dude, I can't squat. I can't bench. Like you have to work in with people, which that is not an issue whatsoever. Like that's awesome. I love it. But it's, it's, it's like, point. yeah, exactly. In a bigger um, facility, like, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, but I'm with you, you know, there's the one year lease and everything. And I'm sure that when he has the opportunity, he'll look to expand. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's the, the, what I love about it is so at that meet, we had, this is not an exaggeration, we probably had at least half the lifters from our gym, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I know that will come with, oh, well, you know, favoritism, yada, 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 whatever. No, like 
the judges were on point. Yes, they all lift at primal, but at the same time, none of them are scared to call you out on whether or not, you know, it's a good or bad lift. Like if you miss depth, you miss depth. I watched them do it. Like yeah. somebody was like, Hey, the, what is that? And it's like, wasn't depth. All right, cool. Like you move on. But I really do enjoy the fact that uh, the judges, the lifters, the overall meet, it just felt like a, a higher caliber as a local meet, right? Because you go, I don't know about you, but I'm used to going to some of these local meets, especially when I was competing like USAPL back in Florida, USPA in Florida. And it was so disorganized sometimes. Like, you didn't know what was going on. You couldn't get information. Like, you had to go find you people. Even, you couldn't even figure out where you were in the lineup. Yeah. So you didn't even know how to line up because there were no computers or the computers were frozen. I, exactly. I've experienced that at high-level meets in the last year. Like, that's that's a constant. So if you can find a good meet director holding good meets, support that exactly. shit. And tell them they're doing a good job. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, Talking with Blake, he was talking about maybe even capping things at like 40 lifters from now on just because of how smoothly it ran, right? right. Like, nobody wants to be there from 9 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night. Hell no. Like, it's, especially, it's especially horrible. Coaches. Like, it's one exactly. thing for competitors, but nobody thinks about the coaches who are just yeah. like, man, it's some, or the spotters and loaders, for example. Oh, man. I So I've spotted and loaded a meet that ran until 5 o'clock for the USPA. It was Same. a night. It was a night. Yep. Yeah, that is. I don't miss those. Like, I think the the Battle of Bay. I'm not. I'm not meaning to talk shit, but I am at this point. But like, when I competed at Battle of the Bay, I got there at like seven or eight in the morning, and I didn't leave till seven or eight at night. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's very typical for battle. Yeah, like that's absolutely ridiculous in my and it's opinion. to the point where people now people now either accept or even expect that from battle of the bay yeah. to the point where i know like bro i'm not going and i discouraged my lifters from signing up because it's not a meet that i in good conscience can recommend just because not that it's a bad meet but it's so big it's so busy it's so hectic it's a long day it's three and a half hour drive each way plus hotels and, and for me the value is just not there like i'm not willing to spend a thousand dollars or whatever to go do battle of the bay again yeah like it's long story short, support your local meet directors and support the good ones. Right. Like don't just go to a meet because it's a, it's a quote unquote big meet. Go and actually talk with the meet directors, you know, have conversations with them, see what they value and see if their values align with you. Cause if they do so a, support them. As a lifter, who's been doing this for a while, when I hear big meet, three platforms, 100 plus lifters, I immediately go, no, I don't think that's for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And a lot of new lifters would go, oh man, that must be the spot. And in a sense, you're right. There will be a lot of lifters there that you can meet and network with. But you also got to understand when you see three platforms, 100 plus lifters, you got to be ready for the full day. It's going to be, you're going to be there yes. until eight yeah. o'clock minimum. Well, so look at, look at the American pro, look at Micah's meets and some of the, uh, some of the other big time ones right i think the showdown i don't think he runs that one but uh um, just jp price usually is it yeah and then maybe, um, i don't know if that's the one i'm thinking about or not i don't know but yeah. like when you but look at these like some of these bigger ones though you're looking yeah. at like 60 lifters capped like that's mm -hmm. it you have to have an invitation but the venues 
I will say Micah has done a fantastic job with this as far as like promoting these higher level meets and making it actually seem like a pro series competition, right? Like you, you, I will say like you won't find somebody else is doing that. The only criticism that I previously had for Micah's pro level meets were that they were held in what looked like a dark nightclub complete with smoke machines and fireworks and lasers and, and he still incorporates a lot of those elements into his meets, but the last few pro meets that he's hosted have been lit much better and have been the camera angles as far as like live streaming and viewing have been much better. Um, And I think, I think Micah is one of the best pro meet directors in America, as far as like hosting high level pro meets consistently. I think he's one of, if not the best. Um, I'd agree with you. Yeah. yeah, big fan of his meets. And then there are other there are there are other really skilled meet directors like Chico Coin in the USPA is famous for putting on really good nationals and drug tested national meets. Um, and a lot of it just comes down to what they have to work with. And the best way to give your meet directors more to work with is to sign up and support them. 100 percent. That's the number one thing. Like and, and at some point, a lot of live streams will become like pay to view. The USAPL is already doing this in some of their really Oh, and some of their more desirable live streams, like the Virginia Pro and the Winter Wrecker. Yeah, you can look. You can tap on those. Get out! No, I swear to you. No, no, my girl lifts in those in those meets. So, so you can tack on a little five or ten dollar charge, and the meat director is able to reap quite a bit more profit. So he's able to put more money immediately into the meat experience with the expectation that he can make it up in the back end by selling live stream tickets. Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know about that. It's the, it's an interesting thought, but again, we're talking about pro level competition. Do you get to go and watch a pro basketball game for free? I mean, that's you know fair, I mean? right? Like, there, like there becomes. Well, I'll be a damned if I'm watching a backyard meet like an Battle eight of the Bay, hour, an eight hour live stream for ten bucks. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but see that before we start charging. In my opinion, I think we have to figure out like how do we actually run these things, right? Oh, because so... right now we suck at it. Okay, so Mike is doing the best bit. job, and I'll say Blake and Shelby for local meets have done the best job that I've seen. I think that the like, best meets and I think the best meets in America right now are in the USAPL. As far as like the way they host nationals, raw nationals, the Arnold, the Winter Wrecker, the Pro, the Surge. Get behind that. Like some of their high level meets now are literally the tits as far as production value, equipment, live streaming, s- support for the lifters, advertisement, showcasing lifters abilities, showcasing coaching companies, sponsorship, like I think the yeah. USAPL is really paving the way far beyond what the USPA and the RPS and the WRPF are doing. And while the WRPF, the USPA, RPS, while a lot of these untested federations have amazing lifters, they don't have nearly the registration base that the USAPL has. So the USAPL has so many more lifters. And if they can get more of these lifters buying live streams, if they can get more of these lifters interested in going to nationals, because they've created an interesting system now, especially in the Carolinas that I'm quite privy to knowing some of the people who help out with a lot of that, like Nick Stevens, shout out my boy. Um, they're doing a tiered system now where there's a pathway directly to nationals and worlds. So you'll start, get so out. You'll start, yeah, you'll start at like the local level and then you have a regional competition, you have state level competitions, you have nationals and then international competitions. And the only way you can progress to these competitions is through qualifying totals. Okay, so I thought you were talking about like paying like oh no no win no. or whatever okay no 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 as so far that as that like, makes more sense though right because now we're talking about actually having a pathway for competition like you just said right it gets the lifters very interested because these lifters exactly. these teens and juniors they go god damn i want to be russell or he i want to well, go here's to your path yep. i want to know joey flex and it's like okay my my teen local lifter here's your path 
start to build qualifying totals. You qualify at the national level, the regional level, state level, national, and then international level. And there's a clear pathway to do it. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I think USPA does have a qualifying total for their nationals. They do. But it's I don't think low. it's as high as USAPLs. It's, it's criminally low. Is it? That's I what I thought. It, I want to say it too. I can't speak for WRPF because I, I don't know. But I feel like they're... I think at 220, it was like 1,300. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, And I get that the, that the USPA Nationals and the USPA Drug Tested Nationals, what they're doing is they're emulating the USAPL. And they're yeah. trying to follow in the success of like, like USAPL Raw Nats is a spectacle. It is a huge deal. It's a massive production. Multiple millions of dollars are put into this meet and come back out of this meet. And the USPA, I don't think, has anything even close to that level. Yeah. So they see I mean, that. Nationals is their equivalent, but it's, again, it's not so even close to that. So they're trying to emulate that through formulating what they call DT nationals, drug tested nationals, which Chico Coin is putting on. So the USPA is watching the success the USAPL is having in a lot of the meets they put on, and they're trying to emulate that. So I do yeah. believe we're headed in the right direction. But one of our biggest obstacles is they take eight hours. And for a spectator, they take eight hours, and it's like you were saying, like for a spectator, it sucks, honestly. Like it's ass. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you have to consume the next day. Like the next day after the showdown, I go, damn, how'd John Hack do? How'd Jamal Brown oh, look do? Oh, look how'd it up. Oh, look You know, how did Yuri do at his last meet? But I sure as shit don't sit there for 12 hours and watch a live stream waiting to see Jamal deadlift. And I'm sure there are some people that do, but I think the vast majority of casual fans would say the same thing. They're just exactly not like so. If I watch a live stream, it's usually when I'm doing something and I will stop and go watch who I want to watch and then go back and do what I do. Right. Or I'm doing work or something, and it's just on the side. I'm just watching, right? But at the same time, like, it's it's don't get me wrong. It's great that they're emulating USAPL. They're trying to emulate these bigger level things, right? But until they have this like breakthrough, okay, this is what our niche is. This is what we're doing as far as like Showtime production, like what Micah's doing. Like I, in my honest opinion, they're gonna fall flat on their flat on their face, like. But that's just that's how I see it happening with people who are trying to emulate things versus bring their own thing forward, right? So unless you unless USPA comes out with their own little like, hey, we're we're the only ones that do this type of competition as far as production quality or something of the sort, and maybe it's something in between Micah and USAPL. But until then, I don't know that they're going to get the support that they need to continue to do things like that. Correct. But. No, I agree. Um, I think that we've touched on that fairly well. Um, I did have a question previously that I didn't get the chance to ask because we move along in conversation so fast. What do you think, quote unquote, went wrong or could have been done better regarding your bench peaking? Like, what are you going to do differently in your next peak to make up for that fact? Because I've had a similar experience where my last three last heavy deadlift sessions have all been terrible. As in, like, I'm not even remotely close to a PR. I And this is three weeks out. I'm taking my last heavy deadlift single. And I'm not even close to a PR. Um, not in the way that I am with my other sessions. I always peak really well into deadlifts at the meet. Like, the strength is always there. But I feel like I could modify my programming to bring my last heavy maybe two and a half weeks, two weeks out instead of three weeks, especially being an untested lifter that allows for more recoverability with my supplements. Um, so that's that's a peaking strategy that I'm considering experimenting with in my next block is simply moving my last heavy a little bit closer to the comp, but then leaving my last two weeks 
before the competition unchanged because that peaking strategy has historically been really, really good for me. Yeah. So, like I said, I peaked too early because I had terrible load management. Right? So, load management is going to definitely be a priority going forward. Um, I also think that I could have selected my... So, those, those that don't know, my training strategy emulates and looks very similar to something of a conjugate style system, right? Um, if you've ever trained with uh, Seth Albersworth, it's very similar to that. Um, it's slightly different and just some of the things that I prioritize, like I prioritize skill work for speed work, but then you're getting into the minor nuances of, well, what is speed versus skill work, right? When really they're kind of one and the same, but... Um, I think it's very appropriate for a tested lifter, by the way. Yeah, and that, I had that conversation with somebody the other day, yeah, because, and I was like, look, like, like... Seth can rely on skill retention and strength accrual through the use of supplementation that isn't an option for some testing. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's, in my opinion, that's where a lot of coaches fall flat, is that skill-based work, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the issue of, okay, well, how do I get better? Or how do I get stronger in this? It's like, how do I move better? How do I do this lift better, right? How do I squat better? How do I squat faster? Well, if you don't have a skill, you can't squat faster. Like it just, I don't care what you do. It's going to look like shit every single time. So in my opinion, skill is uh, a, it's a factor of training that needs to come to the forefront more often. And a lot of my lifters see that and they, recognize that or they have questions around it like why we do that but uh that can be a whole different section on itself as far as like what we're talking about uh so i'm actually considering competing again in like the next six months or so which is unusual for me but i think with this new training modality that i've been doing for about a year yeah better part of a year now i am pretty much i feel ready to go already like i'm already back to training I'm already training the way I would usually train. Um, what I'm going to change as far as bench training is going to be a little more variation as far as like tackling the things I need to tackle. So like um, specifically for me, I'm coming back and I'm doing a one board press because I'm very weak at that point of the range. Um, so, but going back when I get ready for meet again, it's going to be better load management. It's going to be better uh, selection as far as actual exercise execution selection. It's going to be better rep selection and execution. Because I think with trying to do a heavy single pretty much every single week, I was just getting to a point where, you know, hey, you've peaked. You can't go much further beyond that, right? Before you start losing that ability. Before you start taking a a downward turn on that bell curve for strength, preparedness, skill, right? And I think I just found that that point, right? So it was like, I want to say three to, not three, but uh, around four to six weeks out, I hit 413. And then after that, it just kind of took a downward turn. And at that point, it was kind of just like, well, we're here. Let's just write it out. You know, we'll do what we do, and what we can do. Um, but yeah, I think that's what's going to change is just about our load, repetition, exercise selection. Because um, with coming in with a conjugate style too, is 
I have that freedom, not that you don't have the freedom with other things, but like I have the freedom of being ready pretty much year round almost in my opinion, just because of how the training lays itself out. Like we're always touching something heavy every week. We always have these other basics, basis of skill work, repetition work, things like that. So like my training didn't change all the way up to the meet. Uh, one week out, I dropped a lot of volume and then competed. And now I'm back to doing the same things over and over again. Right. Uh, so I think going into that, it would just be a better load selection. I think, like I've said, I will probably end up now that I've got it, I will probably end up utilizing a little bit more velocity-based training mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, using it as a guide. So maybe a little bit more, okay, we're looking for an RPE 9 and cap it at it like a I don't know, 0.12 or something like that. Yep. Yeah, so. I'm with you right there. So at this point, as a side note, I don't want to like dive into this too much, but as a side note, do you still recommend that I buy the rep one? I like disposable income. Okay, cool. So, so I've been waiting. I was giving you a few months to test with it and mess with it before I decided if I wanted to get one, but I'm I'm feeling pretty good about it at this point. Yeah. So for those that don't know, I use a velocity tracker for my main lifts. Uh, that is what the rep one is. It is a velocity tracker. It is probably I would say that it's probably the leading one out mm -hmm. on the market right now. Uh, it is a fantastic piece of equipment if you're looking to help dial in some of your RPEs, some of your training sessions, things like that. Uh, I don't use it solely as velocity-based training. I don't know enough to use it as solely as velocity-based training or anything like that. Um, I need to look up some more like uh, information from Travis Mash and... Uh, Damn, what's his name? There's a doctor out of, I think, University of Miami that has put on a, a lot of stuff from him or from velocity-based training. So uh, a couple of good resources for the future as far as when it comes to velocity-based training. But yeah, it's not something I would use solely in itself just mm -hmm. because I like using more data points. But Bar speed is only one metric. I agree. Exactly. I actually had that conversation with somebody today, one of my athletes today, about, you know, you know, does bar speed indicate your RPE and whatnot, right? And it's like, yes and no. So bar speed can help indicate when things start getting heavier. But at the same time, like bar speed should not be your stopping factor, right? So if I'm hitting an RPE 9 and say, you know, my bar speed slows down a little bit, like I'm not going to call my, bar, my, my RPE 9 based on my bar speed, right? I'm going to look at other things such as subjectivity, the objectivity of it, which objectivity would be, okay, cool, bar speed, technique, you know, how'd they look, how do they, like, it's going to be more things that come into it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, where are we going with? We are going with what I was changing, right? Yeah. Well, I was asking, as a side note real quick, what I thought, if you would still recommend the Rep 1, which you do strongly recommend. Yes. And it's interesting that you say that, because I wanted to ask the question to you, like what you think, where you think you deviated in programming or where you think you could have done better. I wanted to ask you that question without giving you my scenario and my input, because we did the exact same thing. So you may remember that with my deadlifts, I was at Beast Barbell and... Uh, my buddy Brayden, shout out fucking Brayden at the Incredible Bulk. That's my little homie dog. And if you look at this kid, you'd be like, oh, he doesn't even lift. And he's got like an 1,800 pound total as a natty, coached by Garrett Fear. Great kid. But he had driven down from North Carolina and was seeing family in Florida. 
So we all scheduled this big epic meetup at Beast Barbell. And there was like a dozen of us. And on the agenda, I had 300 keys. I had 661 pounds at RPE 7. So I took 650 pounds at RPE 4. And the whole room said 700. Load it right now. <laughs> and in fairness, I didn't argue with them too strenuously because I really wanted to pull the 700. And I felt like it was indeed there. So I kind of let myself get swept up in the moment. I was having a bad day with with some factors outside of lifting. And so I was really looking for an excuse to lift heavy and kind of leave the pocket, so to speak. And I tried to pull 700 the first time and I missed it by a mile crossing my knees. I just got butchered by bar whip. Yeah, I so, remember that. So I went ahead and took it a second time, got it, but it was definitely at RPE 10. Unfortunately, I was like six weeks out at this time, five or six weeks out. My thought process was, okay, no big deal. I'll shake off a little bit of fatigue and I'll sandbag the next few weeks deadlift session so that I have a good last heavy session. And I did not have a good last heavy session. And while there were a lot of external factors that contributed to me not having a good last heavy deadlift, I've noticed consistently that I've, for the last three meets, I've had not good last heavy deadlift sessions. And I suspect it's just because I am also peaking that last heavy process a little bit too early because my, because I, in my last two weeks, I essentially only take like three or four deadlift singles and then one or two triples. So I shake yeah. off all fatigue in the last two weeks. So it always comes together pretty well on meet day, but I feel like I could do better with my last heavy sessions and lining it all up. And I feel like I did the exact same thing. I peaked. I, I essentially ran out of runway for momentum in order to build a longer peak. Yeah. Well, that's so, okay. So let's, yeah, screw it. We can get into it. Whatever. Let's talk about that too. Cause like, I have strayed away from using so much, uh, let's see, like powerlifting philosophy, I guess, and strayed more towards like, okay, cool. Let's look at some of these higher level coaches coaching at a collegiate or like actual real sport, um, professional level, right? And let's look at what they're doing and look at how they're able to actually keep their athletes, one, healthy, two, performing on a, I don't know, sometimes year-long basis, right? A constant state of readiness. Exactly, right? I don't agree necessarily anymore with the whole take 12 weeks to peak or anything like that. Like, And this also slightly has to do with my training process and the way... Uh, I come about training and say what it. it has a ton to do with your training process. Exactly. Right. Cause if, like, you're not and, using, if you're not using Western linear block, then you're right. You don't need 12 weeks. No. And I, I just had this conversation with an athlete this morning. About, he said, look, like I feel it's awesome that I'm touching these weights this often and feel this good doing it. It's like, yeah, that's what I want. Like, it's exactly what I want from you guys. Like nobody else is not nobody else that's not uh not a lot of people are coming back from a training from a meet and continuing training like a week after right like i came in a week after and squatted 533 for a triple on a buffalo bar right and then i came in turn around and benched 165 on a, one board for a triple right and today i'll go deadlift and i'll do a a top triple from blocks on a stiff bar, right? I'm not skipping a beat in my training whatsoever. I'm jumping straight back into training and I don't feel wrecked. Like all of my training 
like granted for this first week, yeah, some of it is reacclimatization, reacclimatization. I'm getting used to again, because uh, I don't know how to speak. Apparently, I'm getting used to like what I'm doing, and I'm finding the quote-unquote RPE tins right now for some of my movements. Like today, I've got a leg press, right? Well, what's the odds of me actually taking whatever I load on a leg press to an RPE ten? Not very high. Why? Because sure. I haven't done it. Like I don't have that skill for RPE ten on a leg press yet. Right. But next week when I come in, I could take that same load and I guarantee you I'd get somewhere between two to five reps more. Right. If I come in at the same fatigue level and the same preparedness, like I could guarantee I can get you two to five more reps. And that's just because of the skill of it. Like, and that's something like this whole first week I'm taking into account. Right. Because I'm doing triples for all of my big movements. Right. So my buffalo squat, my one board bench, and my block pulls with a stiff bar. Like that's what I'm running. I'm doing triples up to an RPE nine, but I'm also realizing that RPE nine isn't a true RPE nine. <clears throat> Number one, I've been doing singles for the past three to four weeks, so none of this is going to be a true RPE nine. I understand that, but at the same time, I'm able to jump right back into this. I'm only taking a week to get used to my training again and find my baseline numbers to then press on from, right? So like to me, from what I've read and from what I've seen with people and from what I've seen from other mentors, like they don't recommend that. I was about to say, and, you were correct in saying that that's rather unusual. Yeah. But like when you look at Seth and his training, when you look at conjugate style training, and when you look at, dare I say it, even West Side, like they only took a few weeks to get ready for me, right? Because they were always ready. No, I'm not saying the way I train is West Side, right? I don't think West Side style conjugate is a good fit for anyone outside of maybe gear lifters. But I am saying a conjugate style programming can be very beneficial for people who actually want to quote unquote be ready for year round performance, right? Mm -hmm. So. In this style of training, I am training performance for longevity. I am trading performance for readiness year-round, right? So I could say, I guarantee I could go in three months, compete again. And I might put up a 17-plus a total. I say might just because there are other factors. But mm -hmm. like I feel very confident in saying that, right? It gives me the affordability to, say, not only compete twice a year, but maybe double that amount or maybe triple that amount, right? And feel comfortable doing it. I feel better now coming off of meat than I have at any point in time, right? And I think it's partly because I'm handling those weights heavy all the time. I say heavy because, again, variation and the way we do things. And it also depends on how you're running a conjugate style program, right? You could have that weekly variation where you're training fatigue for fitness, but or you're not training you're you're kind of trading that novelty stimulus for both of those, right? But with the way I run things, it's more of a block style conjugate, right? So I am running a buffalo bar for squats and I will run that for uh, three weeks and then reevaluate and run it for another three weeks, most likely, right? So it is a block style that I'm running, but and at the same time- the, Are you so using I, the minimum effort strategy on those, um, on the 
specialty barbells as well like so your duffalo squats for example are you taking that in like the max effort direction as yes. well yeah triples and singles at 10 yeah love that I'm, I'm also doing something similar yeah but so if you ever so if you were to look at my training beforehand and the way my training is now it's not much different apart from some small things like more specialty bars are added in um but that's specifically one because they work on some of the things I need to work on. And two, I'm having fun. Like that to me is probably one of the biggest things. Right? Do that here. You have to be fucking miserable all the time and pursue a five pound PR total once a year. <laughs> right. That's, that's the thing that gets me. It's like, if you're not having fun with your training, what are you doing? I completely agree, dude. But like, so I've, I've recently lost clients as far as like clients who are taking a step back from competition and from training in general, because they, they got so stressed out with the process and with competition. Yeah. It's like, well, goddamn, A, definitely take a step back because this shit is supposed to be fun. Unless your name is John fucking Hack or Jessica Bittner or something and you're literally paying your bills. And John's a chemist, so he doesn't even pay all his bills powerlifting. But if yeah. you're not literally making money at this shit, you're good to take a step back. I recently just took a week yeah. off of Instagram and Facebook because I was tired of it. Oh, dude, really I, how long? Have, what, what was the and last you know time what? I posted? Nobody even noticed. Like, that's the thing. Like, nobody cares. That's the best part. <laughs> Nobody gives a shit. So like, and I have seen, I have seen some lifters who get incredibly stressed out by the process. And, and I do. Yeah. To, to that point, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And like, that's my thing, right? So let's make it fun. Like looking at the psychology of things, right? Look at the psychology of training, look at the psychology of me, uh, meets and whatnot. Right. If you don't enjoy the process, what's the point in doing it? That's like people are not going to have the best outcomes. You're not going to have the best things. Like I don't enjoy my job. Therefore I'm changing my job. People like question simple. me on like on certain accessory movements like weighted dips or sled drags, and they're like, you know, well that's non that's non-specific, and you, and you could be making better progress by incorporating more specificity. And it's like, okay, not if specificity beats me up or I find the training boring, and B, I'm just having a ton of fun. You know how much fun it is to strap four plates to yourself and do sets of ten with dips. The whole gym just looks at you like, holy shit, because you're mogging everybody. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it for people. <laughs> but also, okay. Uh, this is not the route we went wanted to go or anything, or well, we didn't really have plans, so whatever. Uh, but let's even touch on specificity, right? Yeah, for sure. Because my training is still more specific than a lot of people's out there. Go and do a set of eight and tell me how specific that is. I'll, I'll sit here and I'll wait. We can argue because I'm going to argue that you know, anytime you do a set of eight, you are not training specificity whatsoever. You're training a different subsystem. I agree. Because what is specific to our sport? It's one rep. It's one Whereas, rep on effort. Exactly. So even, even right. a single at six is not as specific as a single at 10. No, it can't be. No. Like it is probably the most specific you can get within a timeline of training, mm -hmm. within a certain timeline of training, what I will say. But like my training is still specific to what I do. I'm still taking a max effort. Yes, I am taking a little bit different of a bar. So that's one training deviation away from a specific bar. Mm -hmm. I'm still using the same pattern, same squat pattern, same bar placement. I yes, I am doing triples. So yes, that is another deviation. But for the overall concept of it, I am still only two de uh, two training deviations away, or specific uh, specificity deviations away from my actual competition squat, mm -hmm. right? So it is still very specific for me. It's also very specific for I need to work on because that stupid ass Buffalo bar will throw you forward Dude, if you fall forward. I'm doing pause squats 
pause squats with the duffalo bar. And I'm right there with you. And I tell people, if you don't cue tension into the bar and, and prioritize midfoot balance, as soon as you hit the hole and you go to get out of the hole, when I see that bar rock forward or back, I'm going to know instantly what you did wrong. Yeah, have you been uh, looking at my programming? Because we might be doing the same thing. Probably. I mean, there. I mean, I. There's a reason, I, though. <laughs> I'm a I'm a huge fan, and then uh, and then I'm also doing. So we can even kind of take a second to talk about what we're doing in some of our future training blocks, as far as mm -hmm. ways that we think we can improve in areas of opportunity. So right away for for bench, I'm going to be doing quite a bit of comp Larson press. Um, and when I say comp Larson press, I mean my comp grip width, full paw, full competition pause, full re-rack. Um, and I'm going to be doing those for singles and for volume. And I think it's one of my biggest area of opportunity because I found that prioritizing bar path, especially in the concentric portion of the movement, I found that that is everything for my bench press. And I get a ton out of Larson press. Um, and then beyond Larson press, just some good old weighted dips, heavy flat heavy flat dumbbell presses for sets of 10 to 12 like just basic bodybuilder bro type stuff and then for squats we're doing quite a bit of um duffalo bar paw squats we're going to be doing some tempo squats we're going to be in the next phase we'll add bands to some of these movements for some like compensatory acceleration stuff some like conjugate type stuff um and then for deadlifts i'm pivoting right into a conventional block you know, and I've done this yeah. three or four times now. Every time I go back to conventional from sumo, I set big conventional PRs. And then when I go back to sumo from conventional, I set big sumo PRs. So we're just exactly gonna keep, we're just going to keep running. Exactly. It's, it's RTS, what works, right? It's, you don't change what very, works. Very and let's, I think sometimes clients will get a, uh, a misunderstanding when it comes to that, right? Because one, even in a business practice, right? Like, why would you change what makes you money? Why would you? It doesn't make sense. So from a training aspect as well, and from even from like a strength conditioning mindset as well too, right? Mm -hmm. What gives us the biggest bang for our buck, our biggest return on investment? I'm not going to change, right? So you might be running a, a, a pause squat almost an entire year. I ran Spoto presses for almost an entire year. And you know what? My bench went from like 400 to almost 420 like that's huge for me mm -hmm. personally that's, that's huge so, for, for anybody exactly right so that's the thing it's like because i am also i'm running uh high bar pause squats with the duffalo mm -hmm. bar pain yeah, i'm at least low barring the duffalo but i find with the duffalo bar it actually doesn't make it much easier if anything it no. makes you more prone to tipping forward yeah because the bar shakes on you but that's the only saving bar. grace that i've got is the duffalo bar that we have is a lot thicker so it's the Rogue CB4. So you're looking at like a 30-something uh, millimeter bar as opposed to the Titan. Uh, I will forever always use the CB4 if I can because the Rogue, or not the Rogue, the, uh, the Titan bar is a training hazard waiting to happen because that bar sucks. Um, have you ever used it's the Kabuki too slick. So. Have you ever used the Kabuki Duffalo bar? Mm -mm. So it was the original. And I believe it has a greater curvature than the Yukon bar or the Rogue bar like it, it, i think the i want to say that the titan bar has like a six inch drop and the kabuki one has a nine or a ten um regardless i like it but it is so aggressively knurled dude it is i mean all kabuki bars are like that to be honest i've never yeah. come ac across a kabuki bar that i didn't touch and go well damn i wish that was a little softer 
which is which a lot of our listeners are going to hear this and, and they're used to their china bars and commercial gyms and they're going to go what do you mean you wish the knurling was softer bro if you ever come up to a brand new kabuki squat bar it is going to make you bleed like you are yeah. you're going to suffer on that squat bar yeah. and i tal- and i talon grip so i i, I use the rogue squat bar and when i went to ro- when i went to inter or uh, externally rotate my shoulders and take my brace when I, when the ball rotated around the top of my pinky, it ripped the skin off. Oh yeah, dude. Like I have building calluses now uh, because of that, but, but yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a, the exact thing. Like I'll be, I'll be running high bar pause squats with the Zeflo yep. uh, one. So I'm trying to focus on building more quad development and building more quad drive because unlike these old washed up powerlifters like uh, Matt Wedding, uh, not to throw any names out there, um, I'm gonna get sued at some point, but whatever. Ooh. Like, fuck, fuck that guy. Oh my god. It's hard for us uh, to get drop through. into my inbox if you want to fight me on that because I really don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you're gonna sit there and teach the squat, and also use your masters from like I don't know, like 1984 or whatever. I don't know how old he is. I don't care, but I can't sit there and watch somebody. I'm ranting at this point, but I don't care. Uh, somebody change somebody's squat form that looks really, really good somebody who uses their quads like and the first thing you tell them is widen your stance eight inches on both sides get out like just get out i've Uh, seen a lot of old conjugate style coaches and they immediately want to pivot raw lifters to that really wide toes out sit back vertical shin squat and it's like my guy that's not the most efficacious way to move a load raw and and i don't want to i don't want to be like the bearer of bad news but that multiply sit back wide stance squat that's not it for the majority of raw lifters. They don't have the hip mobility for it. It's not even that. Like, okay, you look at a... Try to only use the posterior chain or try to dominate a squat in the posterior chain. Tell me what it turns into. It's going to turn into a good morning very fast. Oh, or some kind squat. of RDL or something like that, right? Oh, my comp squat. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know you're talking about <laughs> Because I used to do that. I used to have a very vertical shin and push back very hard with my hips. You you used to sit way back. Exactly. You you can squat a lot because I squatted 630 pounds doing that. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you, if you built your quads and built your squat with your quads, you're going to have a better time. You're going to have a better squat because what do your quads do? They extend your freaking knee, right? Cool. Like, what is a squat? It's a knee extension based exercise with hip extension. You need both. Like, you can't have one without the other. Like, and that's the thing that gets me. So, that's been my rant for Matt winning because apparently I have beef with this guy and I didn't even know I had it. But the amount that's a lie. The amount of each that you're going to need to complete the squat is going to be dependent on your levers, too. Exactly. Some, some lifters are going to need a lot more hip extension than others. And that's a, a direct response, a direct result of their bar placement and their femur length. Um, and I see a dogmatic approach used by coaches like Matt Wenning, where they want to assume that everybody has similar levers. Um, and I've experienced this with even people trying to cue and coach me. Like a lot of people are fond of looking at my squat and they're saying, you need to be more upright. And I'm fond of having them stand to the side and tell me how it's possible to be more upright and get the bar over my mid shin. Because it's not like I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not like um, and I've had to challenge people like that in real life. I'll say, all right, well, stand next to me and I want you to tell me how it's possible because my bar placement, my bar path is perfectly vertical and it stays over my midfoot. And I believe that those are the two most important things for a squat pattern. A lot of the other stuff we can we can say is, is individualized to the lifter. 
but I feel pretty good about saying in general, you want a vertical bar path and you want to prioritize midfoot balance. And I mean, yeah. at that point, we can individualize from there. Yeah. So the best way I've heard it put, right? So technique is universal, form is independent. Love that. Or not independent, individual. Yep. Uh, again, so I saw that from Seth, uh, Seth Albersworth, right? So he's been a really good mentor of mine for a lot of things. But like, that's the thing, right? So I actually had this conversation with somebody in the gym last night about their bench press and how they could incorporate something and then use it across for all three big lifts and also in their uh, accessory movements to help build them, right? So it's a simple concept of armpits down to the back pockets, right? It is a cue that I use a lot with a lot of people because that's one of the big things that we need, right? It's scapular depression with humeral external rotation. So basically what it means is that we're actually shoving the shoulder down and putting it in a stable position at that point. And anybody that doesn't watch this video, which I don't know if I'm going to put the video up on this one or not, but like shove your back pocket, your back arm, your armpit down to your back pocket and tell me what happens. Like immediately you should feel your lat all the way down to the thoracolumbar fascia that sits and attaches into that pelvis, right? The backside of the pelvis. <clears throat> That's what we're trying to achieve on squat, bench, and deadlift, right? The way somebody goes about that is going to be different from each person. Some people might have a lot that actually attaches to the scap. And if that's the case, then screw you. You're lucky and you can actually depress that scap a lot harder. Um, but some people will have to come up with new strategies to actually do this. Some people won't because they've been doing it, right? The main point is like... That's something that can be used across the basis. And that's something that can be incorporated into the accessory movements to actually help build that pattern, right? It's the technique is depression of the scapula. The form is just how they get there, whether they use lats or whether they're cueing something else like, okay, cool. Well, let me drive my arm down and, you know, just think about pulling with my lat. Or if I'm just thinking about pulling downwards with my lat, pulling back, whatever it is, like, I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter at that point, right? What matters is that we're using the same technique across all three in a different form, right? That's that's the big thing. And what might seem, it's not it's not a cop out. Like it's not what I'm trying to to get out here. If you if you do have a coach and all they're saying is the same things over and over and over, either one you suck at listening, two you haven't grasped the concept or three, they don't understand enough to actually tell you what you need. So they're just throwing the same things over and over and at you. But Not regurgitated cues they don't understand. <laughs> welcome to celebrity coaching. Welcome to the whole fucking <laughs> industry. Yeah, 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 exactly. But at the same time, it's like, if, if I give somebody a cueing, most likely, yes, I have used it with other people. But it's also ambiguous enough that I can use it with multiple people, right? Mm -hmm. So putting your armpit in your back pocket, that's an external cueing that I can use with tons of people. Because I can't get to an internal cueing yet until people understand what they're actually trying to do, right? So I can't ask you to flex your, flex your lats. So you in particular, actually, uh, I can't ask you to flex your lats <laughs> if you don't have that mind-muscle connection. But if I tell you <laughs> to press your scapula, 
then you might actually be able to use your lat to depress your scapula. That's all I can do. That's the only way I can that I can actually contract my lat is purely exactly. by by, recru by recruiting it as part of a group in a motion pattern. But as far exactly. as like putting a lat spread or like a, I cannot. I just can't. Yeah. And like that's Even, the thing. And, I, and I've so, tried. I've tried the single arm lat pull downs to the side where you're where you're lining up with the the, the fiber types and you're really isolating the lat. And short of putting it into a full like Charlie horse cramp, that's the only way I can feel it, which is so annoying. Have you done it from a incline or anything like that? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like all those different types of lat isolating variations for rows and single arms. And honestly, the the number one way that I can feel my lat is by doing stiff arm pushdowns, which you may be yeah. familiar with as like an old bodybuilding style movement that they would do for their lats where they would just walk up to the to the lat machine and then with perfectly straight arms they would push it straight down to their waist yep. that's about the only way i've ever been able to feel it yeah well so also let's talk about it's just turning into an anatomy class now apparently but let's talk about the role of lat right cool so mm -hmm. it attaches to the front of the humerus right its role is depression internal rotation and extension of the arm right so what do you have to create to actually have that. Well, if that's the case, I have to create some kind of opposing motion to pull mm -hmm. back from, right? So I'd be interested one in you is, you know, what does a simple cars look like or shoulder cars, like controlled articulated, articulated rotations, right? Can you even roll that shoulder anywhere? Yeah, and my, right, scapula, be this, and my scapula does fun things when I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, cool, right. what do you, how do you go from there? Like, <clears throat> That's the that's the part that I'm having a lot of fun with learning and whatnot. Like that's, yeah. uh, I am starting school in like April, right or yeah. you know, May, hopefully. Uh, I have been doing so much research to try and get a jump on most people that come into this program, and I feel like by the time I, I'm so sidebarring right now, this is such an ADD thought, but like the amount I've learned in this past year alone. Mm -hmm versus where i was when i started this year especially of anatomy like, and movement oh my god dude like yeah. and that's Most, not i don't know at all i don't 100%. your knowledge of, your knowledge of programming was already like pretty strong but in the last year exactly. like plugging your holes with anatomy and movement has been like huge exactly like how do you it's that's the biggest thing right i i'm starting to plug these holes like i reached out to a few people not too long ago because i realized hey i don't have a, a firm understanding of how to create rotational ability i know how to resist rotation that's easy like training somebody to resist rotation cool easy peasy right but how do we actually start adding rotation into this like how do we start adding rotation for our athletes because that's what's going to give us some of the best thoracic ability what's across anything right Nothing so I how do we start doing that we went so round what? and round about how to build uh, internal rotation in the leg like without doing your standard isometric movements and your standard copenhagen planks and we came up with like some weird banded stuff like some weird clamshell stuff some weird like pigeon get-ups and you're right it can be very difficult because like you can ascertain what the issue is and then you go okay if i'm lacking rotation in my left leg how the fuck do i build it like and you have to challenge it but for a lot of people it's like how do i do so but that's the thing, right? Like that's the cool thing about this whole thing. All right. Yeah. So your problems, my problems, somebody else's problems, some of my clients' problems are all different. Like I've got a client who might have some shoulder issues. You've got shoulder issues or not shoulders, but scap, right? Yeah. Thankfully no pain yet. 
Exactly, though, right? Thank you. But I know you can have a ton. They're two different things. Yes. But they're the same area. Mm-hmm. They're two different things completely as far as like what's actually giving the issue and what's going on. Like this guy had issues actually controlling his scap and getting it to move. Like he was stuck in a protracted area. Uh, like, so just getting him to actually pull back and mm -hmm. set that glenal humeral joint, because you got to remember also like the scapula extends into the shoulder, right? So that scapula, if it's already shoved forward, is going to set that shoulder forward before you do anything else, right? Sure. So if you're already forward and then you continue to go forward, like you're done, right? You get that typical secretary's pose where you're in a kyphotic position and you're in a exactly. lot of rotation at the shoulders and you can't seem to fix it. <laughs> yeah. But also on bench press, right? So sure. if that shoulder's already set forward, you're in a bad spot there. for bench. Like you can't go anywhere. Yeah. Right. So unless you, unless you create the ability to actually come back and set down, you're done. I find one of the telltale signs for that is the the big muscle bound lifters who have to lift their heads to touch their chest. That's yeah. usually a really good indicator for me that you have some dysfunction in your scapula. And it's probably the exact symptoms we were just describing. And yeah. interestingly, at the last meet that I did in years past, you could bench with your head up and on your toes. Well, they recently merged with an international federation called 100% Raw. And one of the stipulations was you have to keep your heels down and your head on the bench. And some of the, some of these bench pressers who were benching 500 plus and they weigh 350 plus, they physically, even with 315, could not touch their chest with their head on the bench. And they yeah. were saying, dude, if you, I feel like my, my shoulder is going to tear. And I'm like, right, well, here's your sign, Bubba, because that's not, that's not good. That's not okay. Exactly. And that comes from a scapular dysfunction. And I'm going to use the word dysfunction. Um, scapular humoral rhythm dysfunction as well, because it's like you... The biggest oh, thing that I usually come across that, right, is internal rotation of the shoulder, yeah. right? Like, how, if you can't touch your shoulder or you can't touch your chest on a bench press, odds are, and it's not every time, but odds are you're missing some kind of IR, internal rotation, sure. along yes, with sure. external rotation. But IR is mainly one of those ones that I find because a lot of people so don't think about it. A lot of people so demonize IR, right? Yes. And it's uh, so... I actually, again, this conversation not too long ago, whenever I was talking with a client or not a client, just somebody in the gym, external rotation, we're putting force into whatever we're externally rotating into, right? Whatever object, like I'm at my desk right now and I'm externally rotating, I'm rotating into it, right? If I internally rotate, now I'm putting power into myself, like into the shoulder. It's the same reason why on a bench press, we externally rotate as we come down and as we come up, we internally rotate to some degree, right? We're putting power into ourselves. How do we do that? We do internal rotation. External rotation is creating stability into whatever we're sitting at. And I'm sure this definition will change over time for me as well. But as of what I understand right now, external rotation being whatever, you know, in a squat, right? Probably one of the best ways to kind of uh, set this foundational like concept. <clears throat> Number one, realize that we have internal rotation in a squat. You have to. Whenever that femur comes above 90 degrees, there begins to be a gliding and rolling aspect to it, right? So it starts gliding and rolling back into internal rotation position. The best way to actually visualize this is get into a frog stance or a frog pose mm -hmm. and just kind of sit back, watch what your legs do. They're going to internally rotate. And that's 
almost across the board depending on your structure right because there's always people out there who are like oh well i'm sitting way back here and i i'm, I'm not internally rotating it's like whatever you're like you're an anomaly it doesn't matter play straight to the side and they can drop exactly. it to gold straddle yeah I about. yeah exactly but that's the thing right and this is where i fight so many people on this whole oh well knee valgus this knee valgus that and it's like i don't care about your knee valgus if you're not in pain and you're structurally not breaking anything, you're structurally still sound, you're functionally still sound. And I almost threw up when I said functionally, but there is a difference between structural and functional stability. Also, like that's, I'm not going to touch on that right now. But <clears throat> if you're still in that same position, like it, as long as you're not hurting, like who cares if you have knee valgus? All right, like I don't care. But going back to my original point, as we're going down into a squat, what are we usually thinking about? We're thinking about external rotation into the ground, pushing our feet out, some kind of external rotation at the hip and the toes or the feet, really. God, I, 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 dude, I heard that cueing so much in the video I was watching that I just, I like, I hate that cueing now. <laughs> I'm like, oh, push your knees out, open your, open your knees. What, what do you want me to do? You want me to split my freaking knee open and just open it? Like, shut up. Like, I, I hate it. Like, I'd much rather, I'd so, I very much don't cue people from the hip anymore for the most part because I don't need to. Like, I very much just tell people, hey, just plant your feet and twist. Like, that's all you need. That's, I push your feet out, not your hips, not your knees, push your feet out because I want that long term chain. The downstream right. effect should be rotation within the acetabulum. Exactly. I agree. That's less cueing I have to give somebody, less thought process I have to take up for and that they person. Don't have, they don't have to conceptualize your fancy coach speak. Exactly. It's very they, easy. They don't care. Like, rotate your femur. I, no, shut up. Just rotate your foot. I don't care. Right. That's It's going to happen no matter what. But going back to what I was saying, <laughs> uh, the external rotation aspect, right? Like, sit into a squat, externally rotate try not to internally rotate on the way coming up. I guarantee you will feel less powerful doing that, right? So if you're listening to this, get into a squat position, externally rotate, and try to keep an external rotation position the entire time. Go into a sumo stance if you're a sumo pooler and try to stay externally rotated. One of the like, corners that I turned in my sumo was when I stopped caring so much about what my knees did as far as like, I would try to mimic the Trevor Jaffe pose where like my knees come straight out and they stay out. But I realized I was limiting my ability to recruit adductors and, and because yeah. I was trying to limit internal rotation. And once I got away from that and I started letting my knees do a more natural movement while I was moving the bar upwards, my deadlift just started flying. And it was like exactly. literally that was all it took to turn the corner. And that's the thing, right? Like it comes back to this whole, this technique versus form, right? So Trevor's technique is probably on a on a level that you and I will probably never get to just because of our structure. Like but that is a technique we can strive towards even if our form takes a little different. So my form's a little different than his. My uh my feet aren't turned out as much. I have more of a straightforward toe than most toe people. Forward. Me too. Right? Way more toe forward. So it is a difference in form, but the technique is still the same. Right. Like I'm still thinking about spreading the floor with my I'm a little different because I think 
I'm thinking about it from a toes aspect. When I think about spreading the floor, I'm trying to take my big toe and my pinky toe and make as much distance between the two as possible. But that's a little different. That's getting more into the nuance of things. That's not something I would recommend for a lot of people until they actually understand what foot pressure is. But like getting into that, that's specific towards me and the way I like to deadlift as far as like setting my toes and setting my feet. Um, so yeah, if anybody wants to know more about that, just feel free to DM me. Uh, you might get some feet picks for free if that's the case, but uh, and if you're into feet, please don't. I don't know. Now that I've made that awkward, but yeah. Uh, but I mean, long story short, what I was trying to say, like don't demonize one thing over the other. Uh, IR is not bad. ER is good along with IR. Uh, coming back to, I guess, bring it back to our own training and whatnot. Like, I'm actually incorporating Buffalo Bar Bench, right? So that is something that is towards the end of my quote-unquote meat prep and peak and whatnot. Like, I felt I started neglecting and I started missing and I started getting not pec pain or pec twin, uh, tweaks or anything like that, but just a little bit more tightness than what I wanted, right? And when I looked into it, like... I was having a hard time with internal rotation and extension. Okay, well, let's look at some of the things that require internal rotation and extension in specific positions. That's the other concept of this too, right? Is how do we create these? It doesn't matter if I give you external rotation if you can't get into position with external rotation, right? So if I give you external rotation, like I can all put my that, hand way back here. Stability and mobility are different. <laughs> <laughs> I used to make that. Don't error. get me started on this. <laughs> Dude, I used to make that error quite a bit when I was a new lifter. Well, that's the thing, though, right? Um, I can give you all kinds of rotational ability. Mm -hmm. None of it matters if, one, you can't control it. And two, you can't get in position with it. Right? Say, especially passively. I can restore a ton of passive mobility, especially if there's tissue restrictions, but it does nothing for your ability to claim and use that position. Yep. I mean, it's a good I, entry point, but... Exactly, yeah. It's a... It, for someone who lacks passive and active, active being that big thing, right? Because I put I place more emphasis on the active range of motion than I do passive. Like I don't care For sure. if you can't actively rotate into internal rotation. Like it doesn't matter what I give you passively if you can't actively rotate into it. Because it either it means this isn't an all inclusive list, but like your neuromuscular patterns are not there to actually rotate and take advantage of these bigger rotators and you're probably relying on these smaller rotators so let's put you in a position that you have to use these bigger ones disadvantage because we're not isolating we can't actually isolate because that's not how the body works but disadvantage some of these smaller ones to take advantage of the bigger ones hence copenhagen planks with a rotation, you're using larger muscles to facilitate this, right? But it's like, if I give you this ability outside of the position and you can't transfer it to position, it doesn't matter. Okay. Right? So case in point being <clears throat> trunk rotation, right? Mm -hmm. well, what does trunk rotation have to do with anything within powerlifting? We're always trying to avoid trunk rotation. Yes, you're right. We are. But tell me how good your thoracic extension is without trunk rotation. Tell me how, when you couple the two together, what's the difference between the two of them? Right? Because it's like rotation being this way, 
Cool. Well, what does that also do? It's extension of the left side of the shoulder, or not shoulder, but the thoracic, right? So in my cool. eyes, if Those I'm... Trunk twists are a part of a ton of people's bench warm-ups. Or, I mean, yeah. in their, their general warm-ups. Uh, Pala press with a, with a twist, banded. Yeah. Like, I... I love these things, right? So, uh, but it's like, how do I get these? One, I need to be able to do them first and foremost, right? So yes, outside of position, I need to be able to do these. If I can't do these in position, I need to take a, take a moment, regress back. So in my own training, I'm doing these seated right now, right? Because I lack the ability to actually drop down into a squat and rotate to do this correctly. Like that's the biggest thing is this regression is only a regression. We're going to regress from there, right? When I get better at actually creating rotation from a seated position, then I can start incorporating, okay, a bilateral stance of being out in front of myself and then twisting, right? Then I can start dropping down into a squat more and more and more. I don't know why I'm trying to squat while I'm video or anything like that. Nobody's watching this, but whatever. It's one of those things where it's like, again, if we are outside of position and we have ability and can't transfer it, it doesn't matter. So let's start transferring ability within a position, right? So that's one of the reasons why I like kettlebell windmills so much is because if I take my deadlift stance and then do a windmill, that's mimicking the thoracic extension that I want to be in when I'm in a deadlift position. But also keep in mind, like thoracic extension is not necessarily exactly what we're looking for on a deadlift. It's the ability of a thoracic extension. So uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that was a good little tangent. <laughs> yeah, I, I think at this point, after 20 or so minutes of anatomy and physiology, we've solidly lost all of our listeners, with the <laughs> yeah. which is cool. Cause I actually have to meal prep and then I have to train today anyway. Yeah. So same here. Going- I'm going to go train after we get done here. Yeah. We've been going for well over an hour. This was a really good one. Yeah, no, I liked it a lot. Um, hopefully we can do another one over the holiday break. Um, I'm not working until the second. So I've got some travel in there as far as back and forth to Florida and North Carolina and shit. But other yeah. than that, I'm pretty available over the over the whole uh, I have work still, but I mean, we'll figure something out. Perfect. All right. And then where can they find you, Dalton? You will find me on Instagram at Dalton underscore MM. Or if you search Iron Circus Strength and Nutrition, uh, either of those, you'll find me. Uh, my business account for training and whatnot. Um, I will be doing bigger pushes towards nutrition probably coming after the first of the year. Uh, I don't want resolutioners. I want people who actually want to make change, but uh, I have some big things working on that. I'm already certified, but I'm working on other certifications. So uh, yeah, Uh, hopefully I will grow that side of my business, which we were supposed to touch on nutrition, which we did not whatsoever. So next time we can make that the entire next one. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, that one's going to piss some people off probably, but that's fine by me. Hey, I'm about I, it. I have very strong opinions on what nutrition coaching is. So, um, what's but, your business website? Say what? What's your business website? That is the letter I, letter C, strength.com. I see strength.com, iron circuit strength.com. So, uh, that is pretty much everywhere they can find me. Where can they find you? So I am very active on Facebook and Instagram both. And if you just search Steve Pruitt with one T, yeah, I'll come up on both both uh, platforms. Um, we've got a really good squat bench deadlift group going on Facebook that's very useful. And then in addition to my private and personal Instagram page, I also have a coaching page now, which is Foundational SS. 
one word for foundational strength systems. Um, feel free to shoot me a DM on any platform or any account. And I look forward to speaking with you all in the future. All right, sweet.